0: If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters, spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately.
1: Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Discover More. This week's guest is Wes Woodson. Wes is the founder and chief storyteller of The Hidden, a streetwear clothing brand that inspires young people to be their true selves. He started a non at 16, delivered a TED Talk at 21, and is about to release his first book titled, I Have Anxiety, So What? After suffering a panic attack that landed him in a mental health clinic, Wes thought, why do I have to go to the lowest point in my life to get this level of knowledge? This started his mission to share stories and toolkits that he learned in anxiety school to help others own their anxiety. In this week's conversation, he shares many of the book's insights, but we highly recommend you pick up a copy when it's released this Thursday, May 20th, 2021. In addition to mental health and healing, storytelling is a huge topic of conversation. Wes explains what makes a good story and how stories are fundamental to human connection. He's one of the most genuine and talented storytellers that we've ever met, and we're so excited to share this episode with you. We hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with us and Wes Woodson. Thank you.
0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional
1: dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name's Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Wes, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you guys so much. I'm excited to be here, 100% excited to be here.
1: I love it, man, excited to have you here. So, as we start off, we recently watched your TED Talk, which had to deal with overcoming change. Yes. Or, yes. We noticed this was released in 2019, just before 2020, with the COVID pandemic, all of the unrest from the summer protests and riots. What yes. is your thoughts around navigating change? How have you applied your TED Talk, the lessons you learned and delivered there, into the year that we just had?
2: I would say, first off, like, this year has been the worst year of my personal life. I've gone through such a level of change. And I think back to my my TED talk, bro, I I really think to the idea of embracing it. And an example of me embracing that change was after the the George Floyd murder. Um, Obviously, I was heartbroken. And, you know, you're you're sitting here while you're in the middle of a pandemic on a global scale. And you're watching someone who looks like you be assassinated in the streets. And, you know, for me, I'm looking at this, I'm looking at the tape, I'm looking at the tweets, I'm looking at the news. And I'm like, what, what do I do? You know what I mean? I wanted to do something. And what I did was, instead of just sitting here and kind of being depressed, I was sad as hell. I was angry, I was frustrated, but I wanted to embrace what happened and use it as fuel to take some level of action. What I did was... I kind of organized a team, and what we did was we built the world's first centralized database on educating people who have no idea what systemic racism is, and we called it the guidebook. We basically found resources that you can watch, read, or listen to, and it's still live today. If you go on thehiddenproject.com, I forgot to mention all this, <laughs> but yeah, it was like a project that Like literally after, like two weeks after the riot started, I wanted to do something. All these friends texting me saying... Wes like, what can we do? It was my non-Black friends were asking me this. And that was an example of me taking what happened to take some level of action. And I think I talked about that in my TED Talk about trying to let it fuel you. Really embracing it and using it as fuel to take some level of action. Um, And that's kind of been my motto for all of 2020, is to use what's happening around me as fuel and not letting it hinder me kind of
1: looking for, not necessarily benefits, but looking for the motivation in whatever that thing is. This summer specifically, I kind of had to dive deep into my own racial tendencies, racial biases, um, which is uncomfortable, you know, especially as a white male raised in suburban Philadelphia. I was born with a lot of privileges that I guess I didn't think about a whole ton. It's almost the idea of implicit bias, you know, like sometimes things that are just a side of the coin that you haven't looked at necessarily. And I think that was a really big thing for me just to kind of work through, look through. And I think the point that you beautifully illustrate is that it's not enough to educate or educate ourselves. That's almost like the first step, right? But ultimately, bridging into action, which I think is huge. What are some of the other big ideas that you talked about in this guidebook? big ideas, you know, that were shared or things that came up there. Yeah, yeah.
2: So what, what the principle of the guidebook was, it was supposed to basically be a centralized database that you of resources that you could read, watch, or listen to. Um, and that was on the educational side. But like you said on the action side, what we also did was we curated a list of nonprofits you could donate to in order to actually, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Because I think what you saw a lot of, is what I call performative activism. You know, People were able to acknowledge that what is going on outside was terrible, but they weren't really doing anything. They were posting black squares. I posted a, a black square myself, you know what I mean? But I knew if I wanted to actually see a level of change, you can't. it can't just stop at posting a black square, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I had many friends reach out and like, where can I donate to? So that was kind of, it was kind of like that thing they teach us in business school. It's kind of like if there's a problem out there, if the market's telling you there's a problem, be a solution. You know what I mean? And I, I, that's what the guidebook was. I wanted to guide people, give them a way how to actually take action against systemic racism by putting their money where their mouth is. Um, and that's kind of where the whole idea went from.
0: I think what people have to collectively understand is there is a difference between reflections and action, yes. right? because the ability to reflect upon monstrosity and tragedy of George Floyd's murder and yes. Breonna Taylor, the names goes yes. on the ability to be able to reflect upon that is merely the first step. But yes. if you do a lot of reflections internally, or if you think about certain issues, but if you yes. do not actually create any sort of a tangible actions about that, I would argue the thinking and the reflections in a way obsolete if they're not creating any positive change or tangible change. So I do want to affirm that with you, that your ability you. to facilitate and to initiate such projects through providing resources and providing tangible avenues for people to donate their time, money. I think that's amazing. And I think it's very clear since the way you answered our first question is you're very intentional. And you knew there is a event that's way bigger than your stories, way bigger than who you are that's happening. So you wanted to make something about it. And that also talks about your ability to reflect. And so your ability to adapt to unexpected situations, your ability to be intentional about unexpected situations are very clear through your answering. And so I'm wondering as a chief storyteller that you brand yourself as, as how people know the brand and the mastermind of West Wilson. would you be able to bring us onto a storytelling journey that explains to the listeners why you have this intentional ability, why you have this ability to adapt to even an event like George Floyd's murder and just how, what happened throughout your life, what sort of seasonings you went through to be able to create that ability to adapt to whatever life throws at you?
2: Man, I I love that question. First, I'm like, thank you so much for thank, thank for all of this. But I love that question. My story and how I kind of got to that point of reflection is a dark one. You know what I mean? I, I grew up in a small suburb called Sharon, Massachusetts. So paint the picture. It's a, it's a white suburb, has a very high Jewish population. And my parents, my mom is West Indian. My dad is from down south. And they had the ambition of moving their kids out of kind of the urban area of Boston. So they wanted to actually provide a better life for their kids. So they thought Sharon would be the best place for that. We grew up in this town and me being one of the few black kids who actually lived in the town, you just naturally off the bat feel othered. And when I say othered, it was like, okay, I know I physically don't look like you. Can't relate to all the things you talk about. I, I'm not. I wasn't rich. You know. I mean, we were kind of middle class. But Sharon does have a more of a affluent side to it. So I grew up hearing like, you know, oh, we have a house down the Cape. We have a house in California. And I'm like, what? Like, I just have a house. I just got one house. <laughs> you got know, two? That's crazy. Um, but I, I grew up kind of feeling other. And what that did to me was I felt alone. You know, when you're alone, all you have are your thoughts. I was kind of reflective. Because in a very sad way, my thoughts were kind of my friends. You know what I mean? They were kind of, that's how I kind of answered questions when I was alone. You know, what that did for me was it kind of built that slow skill set to adapt. But other events in my life that I had to adapt to quickly um, were obviously, you know, growing up in a white community, feeling too white for the black kids and too black for the white kids. And it was kind of like,
1: yo, who am I? But on top of that, I, when I was 12 years old, I was diagnosed with a rare skin condition, called vitiligo
2: didn't know what the hell that was you know what I mean I couldn't even pronounce it and all I knew was I had white spots appearing on my skin that I couldn't control and no one understood my parents didn't understand it the doctors didn't understand it at first Um, my friends sure didn't understand it Um, that's why they called me names like Oreo or leopard boy or Michael Jackson Um, and for context for those who are listening like Michael Jackson had the same skin condition because Michael Jackson is an African-American male, or he was an African-American male, but his pigmentation of his skin just disappeared. Um, and that, that's what happened to me. I had it on my hands, I had it on my face, I had it on my feet. So when you have a situation where, at a young age, you have this thing you can't explain, medical professionals can't explain, what, how do you even adapt? Like, how do you even adapt? And I just kind of got this innate kind of feeling to roll with the punches. We, we would test ointments. We, would, we went to a, a dermatologist who said we could perform a procedure where we take skin from your butt and put it on your hands. <laughs> um, you know, so it's like I had all these things, and I went into this thing where I, I would sit in a tanning booth twice a week to get like intense sunlight on my skin. That didn't really work. So I'm trying all these things, wrong with the punches, and I'm reflecting on it. i like, Wes, like, you can't control this. But you can control how you respond to this. I learned that at a very, very young age um, because I knew that the kids would continue to call me names no matter what. Because I would always hide my hands in my pocket. But sooner or later, they're gonna see my hands, they're gonna see my face, they're gonna see my, my feet, you know what I mean? They're gonna see my knees, where the spots were at the time. They're gonna call me names. But I have to learn how to respond to that. How am I gonna do that? Am I gonna, you know, cry or am I going to do Am I going to kind of fight back? That was kind of the option I realized. But on top of all these other things, you know, my parents went through a very brutal divorce when I was 12 years old as well. And I have two older siblings, so I'm, I'm the youngest of three. And my two older siblings were, they were in college at that point. So I was alone in a house where the police regularly came to my house to break up fights between my parents and it was hard watching all that. So again, you feel alone. You feel alone and you just have to answer to yourself, like, how are you gonna respond? You know what I mean? You can't control what your parents are doing but you can control what you're going to do. That, that is thesis statement I guess you can say or that this phrase of like you can't control what others do. You can only control what you do. That's what kind of has been my motivating force uh, to navigate change and embrace it.
1: Really well said man and I think for me the idea is solitude. When you were alone as a child as well as alone in high school. Because I think as a culture, I'm certainly speaking from my own experience as well, we like to jam-pack our schedules, go around, always have something to do, almost in fear of that solitude. So from your story, it's clear that you embrace that solitude, similar to how you're embracing the change. But around the idea of solitude, what comes up for you? Like, Do you think that's an important part in everyone's journey, something that should be more leaned into? Yeah. i love to hear your thoughts around solitude.
2: Yeah, of course. I personally think, you know, I grew up in a Christian household. I'm very religious and spiritual now. I've gotten closer to my spirituality uh, as of recent, based on last year alone. But one thing that was always taught to me as a kid was you can't love others until you love yourself. To, in order to love yourself, you have to spend time with yourself. So that's why solitude is such, such an important thing. I'll never forget, like, I was telling friends, like, one time in a conversation, like, you ever take yourself on a date? And my friends are <laughs> so like, what do you mean? I'm like, yeah, I used to go to the movies by myself. I used to go to dinner by myself. Like I, I did the whole thing. And this idea of if you don't have time for yourself to collect your thoughts and if you're afraid of yourself, how are you going to respond to the world? There's so much that's going to be thrown at you. But if you can't even handle yourself, then that's a sure way to lose. And I'm not trying to lose. Um, so I needed to, to go away with by myself and feel comfortable being alone. I know we're going to get into my clothing company, but that's why I kind of my first hoodie I ever made, it literally said in a very kind of Yoda-like phrase, it said, be not afraid to stand alone. Like, be not afraid to be by yourself because that's what you need to do. If you cannot be by yourself, you won't be able to give the love to other people that that they they deserve, honestly. So um, solitude is very important, very important.
0: I don't think people do it enough because they're afraid to be by themselves. That's such a unique story because I think the global pandemic of COVID-19 was such a monstrosity yes. in terms of financially, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, relationally. It was such a, it imposed such challenge for many people because of the lack of introspection that Americans grew up with. Like yes. what Aiden talked about, our worth as Americans are valued strictly through the level of productivity, Yes, right? Like how How many hours are you working? How many hours are you staring at your screen? How many hours are you producing? Are you completing projects? Are you in a meeting? And that's why when pandemic happens, everyone, they were forced to detach from their worth of what they do. And that's why it was so hard for people because they never had to press a brake on their paddle. They never had to slow down. They were forced to. In a way, it's almost like contrary to everyone else's story for you, Wes, you almost mm-hmm. your whole life prepared you for the pandemic like everything <laughs> happened throughout your life was a specific checklist wow. wrote down by god i'm a christian myself so it's almost okay. like god wrote this personally catered checklist for all right Wes, you're going to endure your bowling due to your skin condition you're going to do the otherism because of your skin you're going to endure identity crisis early on because of everything you're going through so then how did you show up during the pandemic in terms of your internal reflections in terms of because i'm sure you're so used to pausing and reflecting about examining your life like what aristotle talked about right unexamined life is not worth living for so but then when there's such a prolonged 10 months of that date because before, yeah. you, you're used to going on date, on a movie, on a dinner, yeah. just sparingly just so. But then now you had to go on a date for 10 months by yourself, especially during the quarantine. Uh, wow. What are some of the things that showed up in your inner reality? I would say, right? First off, thank you for saying that. Because
2: literally, hearing that just makes me put this past year in a whole different perspective. And what I mean by that is this past year, I had to hit reset on that solitude. Because I spent... Four years prior to that in college, being kind of what Aiden was describing, about how, like, you know, you're just being um, productive all the time, like, all the time. Everyone at my school, I went to Babson College, which is the number one school in the world for entrepreneurs, as they uh, preach. And it's a great school. It was my dream school, and I loved it. And I went there with the idea that, you know, I, I would be amongst the best young entrepreneurs in the world, you know what I mean? That was the kind of the mindset I had going in there. When I get there, right, like, everyone is just productive all the time and if you're not productive you feel like you're doing, not doing anything you feel like you are you feel ashamed you feel like not enough you have imposter syndrome you feel like you know oh my gosh i'm not doing enough like i'm not being productive enough my company's not generating re- enough revenue enough profit like all these things were were being pressed on me as a freshman as a freshman and my four years that sense of Solitude that I just kinda spent earlier half of my life learning that God prepared me for went out the window. So when the pandemic hit, I had to kinda go back to who I was as a kid. You know what I mean? Being okay with being alone. Because when I was at school, it was go, go, go all the time. And the only time you were alone was when you slept. And that wasn't even that much. So I had to hit reset. And what it looked like for me in the beginning, it was extremely hard. It was extremely hard because me being an extroverted person and me being used to, for four years, being used to being around people all the time, when you take that away from someone, and on top of that, we are social beings in our nature, I felt depressed. I felt depressed. I I was like, whoa. You know what I mean? I felt really scared to be alone. But what helped for me is journaling, is writing and journaling and reflection all the time. Uh, I have a note section on my phone where I literally like reflect almost every single day, whether that means a business idea, an idea for my book, or just a thought that crossed my mind that I heard on like, the radio. I don't run away from reflection because I, that's what got me through the times when I was 12 years old, going through my parents' divorce, going through the, the bullying. Reflection has always been what has worked for me. So that is what has gotten me through the pandemic, hands down, is kind of getting... Back in touch with my reflective side because my four years in college, it was go 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 all of the time. So I appreciate you saying that. I really do. I really do. say thank you for saying that. You know, God has prepared. Me. But I think I strayed away from that. You know what I mean? Because I was trying to be productive all the time, and I had to hit reset this year, like hands down. But I'm getting better. Getting better. Knowing how my body responds. I'm understanding how seasonal depression is a real thing. Um, and how, you know, when you're inside for too long and you're not really doing much and that 4.30 p.m. hits and the sun's kind of coming down and you're like, oh, man, I feel like crap. For me, I took a second to be like, OK, I'm becoming aware. I'm acknowledging this level of emotional change I'm going through. I take action. So I do. I, I go for drives. You know, what I, mean? I go for drives. I go for a walk with my mask on, of course. I do these things. But that wouldn't happen unless I took the time to reflect. So I see all these things to say that like this last year, I had to hit reset on my solitude. And I, I hope maybe your listeners can relate to that because we have to get comfortable with being alone.
1: Definitely, man. I think that serves as almost a reminder and a large-scale observation kind of as the pandemic yeah. as a whole. I like yes. to see it in that optimistic light of it gave people the opportunity to have that solitude, to have that yes. reflection. We talk yes. a lot about the power of reflection and creativity, which is yes. kind of ringing through in your storytelling around your writing practice, your reflection Thank process. You. Speaking from myself, my journaling practice has really helped with the voice in your head, you know, just that ongoing narrative of like things always talking, you know, I think, always, especially for creative and productive driven people, there's always like that ongoing narrative. And I personally find writing those things down, just even if you're just throwing them on a paper, it helps process through that. And I think that really ties in your passion and interest in mental health has just, I was wondering if you could talk about that ongoing narrative, the voice in your head and how that plays into your personal journey.
2: Yeah, what you said about, you know, putting your thoughts on paper. This year, I learned that. And what triggered me getting in touch with my reflective side actually came before the pandemic was a pandemic. I know COVID-19 became on our radar, if you think back to it, November, like early November, I think, I'm not sure when the first case was reported, but what actually triggered me going into my reflective side was in February. So in February, um, and this is kind of part of the story that is part of the book, I actually escaped in a very much abusive relationship. And for me, you know, not knowing who I was outside of this relationship and not knowing, you know, how to be alone, not knowing, you know, because I was with this person, I was with other people all the time. And when, you know, those things kind of end abruptly, um, you don't know who you are. And I actually had the biggest anxiety attack of my life. This voice in your head, I had all these things like in my mind, like, oh, my gosh, like what people are going to think about you now that you're broken up with this girl? Like, what are you gonna do? How can you go back to school? Because the way we broke up was very, very traumatic and dramatic. And I just did not know what to do. And for me, my favorite rapper is Logic. And I'm sure you guys can relate to that. He came out with a song called 1 800, which happens to be the National Suicide Hotline. And I um I called it. I called it one night because the voice in my head got too loud. It got too loud. Uh, I didn't have a plan for hurting myself, but I did not have a solid plan for like continuing i didn't know what to do so i called the hotline um thinking about that song i called the hotline and they connect me to the lady named janice and i remember her name because like we spoke on the phone for such a long time and that was one of the one of the things she told me to do was to write how what was the voice in my head saying that's what i did i actually ended up writing that former girlfriend a letter that i never sent after I hung up the phone. It was 4.30 in the morning. But it was the idea of just putting your thoughts on paper um, or on digital paper. And so it was Janice who kind of triggered, who kind of woke me up back to be on the reflective process um, and the reflecting process of journaling. And my passion for mental health, go back to your question on mental health, I've always kind of had struggles with anxiety. Um, For me, the earliest memory I had was in third grade. I could not take tests at all. Like, I had a test of anxiety. I didn't really know it was called that at the time. Uh, and then when I was 16, I would failed my driver's ed exam three times because I had anxiety attacks each time. And my mom was the one who kind of brought it to my attention that you might have anxiety. Uh, and it wasn't until I was in college, had another uh, anxiety attack because I was presenting a, a presentation in class, my marketing class, and just had the biggest brain fart ever. I thought I had ADHD. I thought I, I could not pay attention. But I went for a psych evaluation. And I failed. I just didn't. She's like, you don't have ADHD, but I think you have social anxiety. And then it was kind of later on that same year in 2019, I gave that TED Talk where I said, I have social anxiety. Um, And the reason why I did that was that was my first attempt to kind of get more in touch with mental health.
0: I do remember hearing about your TED opening and that you, you were you started your talk with, by the way, I have social anxiety, which is a pretty Ballsy way to start your first TED talk is <laughs> yeah. by yeah. admitting your greatest fear, admitting your greatest quote unquote, a uh, defect. And what that tells me is the common theme I see with you is identity. I hear yeah. the word identity over and over again from your storytelling. Yeah. Whether it's the identity crisis you had to overcome, not once, not twice, yes. but three times. Yes. And with the most recent identity crisis you experienced with your girlfriend. Right. Because when you're in that relationship, when you're spending a prolonged amount of time with each other in a dangerous way, if it happens, you almost lose your part of identity. And your identity with her identity becomes morphed into one and you almost become a deluxe (laughs) buy one, get one free package, (laughs) (laughs) you know, which is a very unhealthy way. So and because you had to combat your identity of social anxiety during your first TED talk. And yes. you had to combat your identity crisis of this person who is too white for the black kids and too black for the white kids. Yes. I'm curious because you have this multiple identities. You're not just a speaker, a very well-known speaker at that, very successful one. Uh, you. You, you gave. You're about to be a published author. Out of yeah. all the identities you're dealing with, what's the identity that you self that you want to embrace the most?
2: Honestly, like I love that question. I think for me, I believe I'm a storyteller at heart. You know what I mean? I I think that is my identity in terms of, obviously I'm a black African-American male, which is another identity of itself, but like when I think about how I communicate and how I just even just behave, I even see my whole life as a narrative. Like you mentioned before, how being a spiritual person, you believe that God has already pre-written the story of your life and you are simply just reading the pages and acting accordingly. I believe that, that's what I believe. So um, I believe I am a storyteller, that is my identity. I know that's kind of how I brand myself, but it really kind of comes off in every single part of my life. Even on my wrist, I have a tattoo that says Proverbs 3, verse 5 through 6. And the book of Proverbs in the Bible is literally a collection of stories. I mean, the Bible is one big story, but Proverbs itself is a a collection of short parables that teach you lessons. I just love this Bible verse so much, but um, I really align with the identity of being a storyteller. Um, I think when more people understand the power of storytelling, the statistics behind it is like, it's it's a better way of conveying information. If you like give a presentation in class or at work, you know, if you have a bunch of stats, no one's going to remember that. But if you can kind of pack those stats in a narrative, people actually resonate with you. And storytelling is how I've made friends. It's how I met my current girlfriend. It's just, it's done so much for me that that is my identity as a storyteller.
1: Definitely, man. And I think that identity shines through of everything that you've talked to us about so far today. I mean, you, mostly of all of the questions that we asked you today, most yeah. of them are led with storytelling. You know, I think that's such an impactful and empowering way to deliver the lesson you, or the insight, but just through story. And you can even see culture itself kind of gravitating towards that storytelling model. I know. Before he passed, Kobe Bryant was really diving into that storytelling space, really using his experience to bridge and convey those ideas in story form. So all of that said, what makes a good story for you? I mean, as the chief storytelling officer, what makes a good story?
2: (laughs) One that provokes emotion, you know what I mean? One that people can resonate with. And you're only able to achieve that by being vulnerable. So, I mean, essentially... A good story is one that is vulnerable and authentic and not just crafted up. So, I mean, let's go back to the TED Talk, too. Yeah, I did come out there and said I have social... I admitted my biggest fear. Because up until that point, I had never told a single person. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my friends. I only told my girlfriend and my mom. Only two people who knew about it. But literally, I go up there and I just say, I have social anxiety. You know what I mean? I, I knock down that wall storytelling is so powerful because it gives you that ability to knock down that wall and establish connections. So I personally think a good story is one that provokes emotion and that is extremely vulnerable and authentic because if not, then no one's going to really listen to you. I think back to the favorite movie you you ever watched. I think it is one that provokes some level of emotion in you, something that you're able to relate to. I think that's, that's what works for me. You know what I mean? that's how I make friends and that's how I make
1: connections like this. You know what I mean? Definitely, man. We always talk through that is that, I mean, it's a Brene Brown idea, but vulnerability yes. is strength and yes. courage is a necessary part of vulnerability. You know, yes. and I think the power of it is that We all have those things in common, but a lot of times don't talk about those mental health, whether it be mental health, whether it be physical challenges or just even how we're going through with relationships. But really talking about our struggles and talking about the things that we're battling creates that bridge of connection. You know, I think we all have so much more in common than we initially always think. You know, everyone's fighting a battle that no one knows nothing about is the phrase that I always come back to that's a snap sorry we used to, we used to snap a lot <laughs> <laughs> we agree. that's a
2: snap bro the, the um, golf
0: the golf clap
2: love it love it no, I totally agree we don't know what the other person is going through and also that's kind of what led me to really embark on this mission of sharing my story because I know how I come across so, let's, I mean, let's, let's connect for a second storytelling and identity because I know my identity as a as a black male who is quote unquote well spoken I come across as being put together like well put together but the best analogy that i use is kind of like a swan and like you look at a swan yeah on the surface it looks beautiful as hell. like it looks like glorious magnificent like it's pretty but if you look underwater that his legs are going crazy they're flapping like nuts that's how i thought about myself like okay i, I can i can sound okay i can look okay but underwater i'm flapping my feet like crazy you know what i mean that voice in my head is loud as hell and i'm having panic attacks twice a week and i had a friend of mine ask me he was like wes like you have a girlfriend you have the business you have you go to a great school how do you have it all put together and i was like bro i don't <laughs> i don't and i wanted to just kind of pull back the curtain you know what i mean and, and just be vulnerable i was tired
0: of hiding and pretending i was okay because i wasn't that's uh that's amazing the power of storytelling is so evident throughout the culture as well. I guess trifecta of barrier breakers for the back terms, which is music, sports, and food. Mm. I view them have the trifecta of penetrating and pierce through most barriers, whether your skin cone, your zip code, your socioeconomic yep. status. It doesn't yep. matter who you are. Most people find that oneness and connectivity through the trifecta of music, food, or sports. And right. out of that trifecta, I think music, and food are about storytelling. Yes. I think sports is more about the competitiveness, the, the violence, the aggression that draws people in. Most often than not, there's also yes. golf, like very gracious sports as well. Right. But in particular to food and music, people gravitate towards them because they're they're storyteller. Because right. there's a lot of storytelling instilled through food and music. Right. And I love Logic. Logic is also one of my favorite rappers. And I love that 1800 put him on the map as a mainstream. Before he was up and coming with he, he, also the rap Pack. He's very well known. A lot of mixtapes. But it's, it's the first multi-planum record that got him on the map, which is 1800. Yeah, exactly. My favorite lyric quote from him of all time is he had a song very early on. And he said, I forgot the song name, but he the line goes, How can sky be the limit when there's footprint on the moon? and that it's crazy like that guy's a wizard with words and quotes like that stays with you because every artist uses music as their platform to storytell their journeys their relationship their past the grow-ups the the come-ups the journey and that's why it's so powerful that's why people love music because people can often see themselves through the reflection of the songs or people see the power of storytelling and uh, food is the same thing right the chefs use different ingredients, harmonic relationship between acidity, sweetness, you know, oh. sugar, carbs, whatever, it's also storytelling, your storytelling about the ingredients, about the quality of food. And so with all that being said, I'm sure yeah. not just at the TED talk that you gave, but you intentionally use storytelling as a bridge to connect with the different people. Yeah. And because you embrace vulnerability so much, there has to be a lot of people who came up to you after the show, after hearing your talk and they also yeah. share about their vulnerable pieces yeah. and i'm wondering what are some of the impactful storytelling moments that happened throughout your public speaking career that stayed with you
2: yeah off the bat when you mentioned that i think about after the talk was done on that day in april blind man who was in the audience he comes up to me and he's a, he's a white he's a white dude but he has like a caribbean accent but he he was saying that you know hearing my story and hearing Me take ownership of anxiety itself. He told me he wanted to reframe the way that he felt about his blindness. And that was just crazy to me. You know what I mean? That was nuts. That someone just, first off, someone felt compelled to walk up to me and just like, you know, share that, you know, be vulnerable with me. When you experience that level of vulnerability in a new connection, it does something to you in your heart. I think we're social, like I said, we're social creatures. We need to. Feel that connection, and that connection of just sharing vulnerability is huge for me. Another impactful moment that comes up for me is when I started opening up my about my mental health journey and about my suicidal ideation and how I kind of overcame that. I actually had a, many of my former classmates in high school. I went to an all boys Catholic high school. Mental health, sexuality—that um, doesn't. We don't talk about that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Never mind that in a Catholic place, but as men, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about our feelings. So. I've had people t- tell me, to like literally DM me on Instagram saying I am two years clean from my opioid addiction and I have literally kind of overcame my own suicidal ideations. Um, they explained to me they- how they have had failed attempts on their own and these are men, these are, these, are, these are boys, like young men that we're talking about, not female. I think it's very, not I don't want to say common, but we kind of hear more females talking about this and they're more in touch with their feelings. But if, if we do it, it's like we're weak, that shouldn't be, that's not right, you know what I mean? Men have feelings too. So I definitely am taken aback by when you are vulnerable with someone else, it would drive them to be vulnerable with you. And another, I guess, uh, a positive way about being vulnerable with storytelling, that's how I picked up my current girlfriend now. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And how it happened was my, my best friend, he moved into a new apartment, him and his girlfriend, and he invited me over because his girlfriend was going to invite her girlfriends over. And you know, who wants to hang out with their girlfriend's girlfriend? So he was like, "Let's <laughs> go my house." It's like all over his house, and I guess it was a small get together of like five people. You know what I mean? And there's a girl that walks in, and she's like, you know, on the kitchen table, and I see she has a big tattoo on her wrist. And me just being so like captivated by everything, I look at this tattoo, and I'm like, "What's that?" So I go over. I'm like, "What is the story behind that tattoo?" I want to know. And she tells me this whole story about how uh, her grandfather who passed away. Uh, told her this whole, you just know, told her this kind of bedtime story of the tattoo for context is a is a tattoo of a boot. I should have mentioned that too. It's a boot and it has laces all that go around her her forearm. And I was talking to her. I was like, "Oh, what's the story?" And she was telling me the story about you know, there's this fisherman who would fish every day and he would never catch any fish, but he would catch boots and junk, and he had to be okay with that because tomorrow he could potentially catch a fish. And it's the idea of it's a reminder to keep going. Despite the obstacles you face, and I was like, "That's a beautiful story." You know what I mean? Like, I was, that's amazing. And then, I mean, we continued storytelling <laughs> after that. It's <rest laughs> history, <laughs> but it's the idea that you know, it's just people have stories. People have stories. We're all just living one big story, and I think that's how you can make more connections. It's by literally just telling your story. I love it. Yeah,
1: me too, man. <laughs> the idea that we're all living one big story. Cohesively, I think it's such a powerful idea. And the story you told around you and your girlfriend speaks elegantly to the power of curiosity. And that's something that we think about all the time when it comes to the podcast. And when I'm going through my mental health journey, uh, I've definitely gone through a lot of anxious tendencies. Still do battle them pretty much day in and day out. But curiosity is almost the bridge that allows me to move through them because yes. there's always something more to discover. There's always something more to connect is really like a backbone for it a lot. I yes. think leaning into those curiosities often allows for connection to happen, right? If you hadn't yes. asked her that question, you would have not known the boot story. You would have not had the girlfriend that you have now. You know? That's good, man. It's the innocence yeah, of one simple question. One simple question. And that,
2: that let's dig into that with the idea of curiosity with your mental health, right? I mean... I see a therapist and she has taught me and I've actually, you know, gone through more therapy too and more intensive therapy that's taught me a lot more, but my therapist I see weekly taught me how, you know, how to overcome anxiety is not to just suppress it. I mean, I think when you feel such a level of shame or embarrassment around anxiety or having anxiety, having these anxious thoughts, you're so quick to be like, you know, stop, 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 stop. You want to tell your voice in your head to stop. But what I realize is, what you resist persists. That's, that's a fact. So you try to suppress these feelings. Oh, yeah. <laughs> True. <laughs> uh, when you try to, you know, suppress these feelings, they they keep getting louder and louder and louder. But what she kind of told me was to be curious about these feelings. Try to unpack them, and that's kind of what is the backbone thesis of the of the book: is how to overcome your anxiety is not by you know stopping the worry because you can't live a life that is worry free i'm sorry that doesn't exist <laughs> like there are going to be worries are going to be obstacles in your life um and it's not about being worry free but more so fearless of worry what that kind of meant in the book what i try to argue is how you how you get to overcome your anxiety is by acknowledging that you're worried right and trying to be curious enough to understand why you're worried in the first place because then that that goes on a whole different path of self-exploration reflection um and you get to learn more about yourself but that idea of not being curious about your feelings, it's such a detriment to you. I mean, it's, it's, it's harmful to you. You know what I mean? You're robbing yourself of an opportunity to learn more about yourself. Um, so I think curiosity and mental health are very intertwined and they're very important. They're very important. And we have to teach more people to be more curious about their feelings
1: instead of hyper-judging them and just dismissing them. Hands definitely, down. Definitely, and, man. I can't agree more. A uh, saying yeah. that I always come back to is you got to feel it to heal it. Yes. which is so simple, but like you got to sit in it a lot. I mean, you know, I went through a breakup last September and as much as I wanted to, you know, yeah, it's all good. I mean, it had to be done at the end of the day. But I think as much as I wanted to dive back into other coping strategies like booze or dating apps or just packing my schedule, like we talked about earlier, I really forced myself to sit in it, feel in it, journal around it, explore all of those interconnectedness But I think that almost seems like the ethos of what you're talking about in the book is really facing those ideas head on, not pretending they don't exist. So I was wondering if you could walk us through a little bit about the mission and purpose. Obviously, it's very aligned around mental health, sharing your personal story. But when and why did it occur to you to write a book about it? I think it's one thing to share your stories with friends and family, but it's another one to write a book about things that are, you know, very intimate, very vulnerable. What made you make this decision? I'm going to answer your question with a story, (laughs) honestly. Um, After
2: I I called the National Suicide Hotline, um, and I spoke to a lady named Janice, like I mentioned before, and, you know, I started the idea of reflection. I wanted to get more help. So I made the call for myself to basically hospitalize myself. So I went to the hospital. For me, when I thought, you know, when you go to the ER, you think – you're going to get, you know, some medication or something like for, along those lines. But when you have something inside of you that you can't really see, it's kind of different. So I loaded the ER with the expectation of, you know, being asked a serious question, series of questions and maybe, you know, being told to go back to my therapist I was already seeing and, you know, get medication. That, that I thought that's what they were going to do for me. Um, but instead, they kind of walked me down a different wing of the ER for uh, the mentally ill. I would say I, it's a whole different wing. Of a hospital and I gotta go in this room that's like a very very small room smaller than the room I'm in now and very much smaller than the room you guys are in right now uh, and if you can picture like a, a jail cell that's exactly what it was like um, it was a holding cell there was no TV the bed had no kind of railings to it there was a chair that had no sharp edges to it uh, there was a door that was only accessible from the outside in, not inside out. So uh, when the door was closed, I couldn't get out. On that door, there was plexiglass with, with like scratchings, and I look close with their fingernail scratchings of someone trying to get out. Bad, 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 like scene. They took all my valuable like my valuables away, put me in a little Johnny, like a little hospital gown, and I'm sitting there for four hours. And I'm like, oh shoot, this you're really in it, you're really in it. And finally, a doctor comes in. He gives me a psyche evaluation, the series of questions that I thought I was going to get, but he gives me three options after that. He says, one, you go back to your therapist and we can give you medication. Two, you can become an inpatient in our hospital and live here and get intensive care. Or three, you can go to our outpatient program. Now, outpatient program is like you essentially go to a mental health facility daily and get to go home after, after spending nine hours a day uh, talking about anxiety. So I chose that option. I was like, I'm not gonna live in the hospital I'm not gonna live in the hospital. I don't. I don't wanna be away from my parents. You know what I mean? I I wanna kind of go home after. So I chose that option, and I went there five days a week, nine hours a day, intensive. Like intensive talking about your anxiety and depression. I'm in this room full of kids who are younger than me, who are older than me, same age as me, and they suffer from depression, bipolar disorder, sexual abuse, PTSD, anxiety. Mind you, I'm just coming here. Because I had a mental breakdown that was triggered by a heartbreak, by a bad breakup. You know what I mean? But I'm in a room full of kids who are, you know, suicidal, making actual, like a a girl would come in one day with actual marks on her wrist. It was so crazy to just watch all of this this happening in real time. I felt guilty being in that room. But the more and more I, I I stayed there for three weeks and I learned so much about how to unpack my anxiety. And I was like, a light bulb went off one day and I was like why do i have to go to the lowest point of my life to get access to this level of knowledge you know what i mean and for me like i told you before my entire life has always been reflection i i I love to write i love to speak after i write and that's how i kind of create i I kind of get my feelings out so i knew i was like i want to package all the things i'm learning in this program and give it to my friends at school who are suffering with anxiety too because at school Everyone's hustling and bustle all the time. No one's sitting down with their feelings, but they're suffering as well. So it's like this weird cycle. I want to give them everything I'm learning. So a book just made sense. You know, what I mean, it's made sense from a utility standpoint and what I could personally do. You know, what I mean, I couldn't go to a mountaintop and just scream. If you have anxiety, do <laughs> these things. Like, like I, can't, I can't do that. Um, so I wrote a book. You yeah, know, I wrote a book. Going back to the previous point of the pandemic. And finding the, the optimistic kind of view of it um i had nothing but time to write a book like i was inside on my laptop and i wrote 34,000 words I, you know in like four months it wasn't just my story it's like a culmination of research and you know interviewing psychologists, psychologist my therapist my mom was a mental health therapist um and trying to understand what is anxiety and how can we overcome it and i found a publisher who kind of you know agreed to publish the book and and because of that The book is publishing in a few months. So the reason why I wrote the book is because I wanted to basically share the level of knowledge I learned um, in that program. I call it anxiety school because I felt like I was going to school for anxiety and I wanted to share that with other people. And that's been the sole mission of the book. Um, And my story is just a a piece of the book, but the main part of it is to be a collection of tools you could use to see your anxiety in a different way because you're not crazy. You're just anxious.
1: I love it, man. That's really powerful. We, you know, first off, congrats on writing a book at GMH. age. It, I know it's no easy feat. As hard as writing one Instagram caption or blog post may be, putting that times 300 for a large publication isn't an easy feat, so definitely acknowledge you for that. And I guess on the side of your book, we want to encourage our listeners to go out and get a copy, of course, but I was wondering if you could share a little bit about the high takeaways of big lessons. You mentioned you try and explain what anxiety is and how we can yes. overcome it. Yes. I was wondering if you could dip your feet in the water a little bit of how to overcome it, some of the big tools, big ideas that you learned from your experience in anxiety school.
2: So I, I also want to add disclaimer, I guess you can say, it's like the book mm-hmm. is not meant to be a substitution for mental health or mental therapy or medication. I fully acknowledge that those things do work. For, for most people, um, I just I wanted to share information that could uh, help with that as well. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not a replacement; it's an addition. And that, that's how I that's how I see it. So with that being said, to really delve into it, all the advice is going to sound so rudimentary or self explanatory, but people don't even don't even think about this because people don't even, they don't even realize the importance, for instance, of a support system. You know what I mean? And what I describe it in the book is like a basketball team. I grew up playing basketball, like, much of my early part of my childhood. I always kind of loved the game. It was, like, my escape. But when you think about a basketball team, right, you have your players, you have your coach, and you have your playbook. That is essentially a system in itself. And your objective is to win the game, win more games than the other, than the other team. So how do you how do you defeat your anxiety? How do you win the game? Well, you have a team. So my team consists of my therapist, who's my coach, my teammates, who are my friends, who I talk to about my anxiety, Openly, my playbook is my set of coping mechanisms that I have in my in my back pocket. So, in uh, anxiety school, they said, "What's in your toolkit?" For me, that is going for long drives, I mentioned before. You know, getting out of the house, trying to do things, trying to be active. Music, logic. (laughs) We were mentioning logic before. I love logic. Um, The idea of you know not trying to sit with your thoughts, but actually trying to experience and feel the pain, or feel feel what's making you anxious, and trying to unpack it. But I really, really stress the biggest thing, the big, one of the biggest takeaways of the book is to establish a support system. You need to establish a support system because without that, you can't go at this alone. That's one thing I really, I really delve into. But I also get into how to, the importance of therapy. You know what I mean? You really, really need to kind of be okay with going to a therapist. I know there's a large stigma around therapy. But I think it's really, really important and it's really
0: integral if you want to progress in your mental health journey, in my personal opinion. Go full circle into what we talked about during the earlier half of this conversation is the power of curiosity. Yes. Whether you're going on dates with a girl, with a guy, whether you're going on dates by yourself, Mm -hmm. without that curiosity, that connections will never be formed. And as we always know, what a single factor dictates how well the date goes. It's usually the curiosity as the bridge. So you can contextualize about who you are and exchange that. And the same thing, I think the same principle applies here is unless you genuinely believe you have absolute total control over your anxiety, you would like to urge the listeners to uphold and to embrace that curiosity by learning for more collective avenues for how other people deal with anxiety. And I think the thesis and the most important purpose of this book, in my opinion, is to show people simply... You're not alone.
1: You're not alone. Right?
0: It's a narrative. It's a truth. It's a story that many people experience. And by seeing an author like yourself, seeing like a speaker like yourself who consolidates not just your experience, but the collective experience from your part of life, it's for people to peer into that. Okay, I thought this anxiety, this boogeyman, this monster is a unique demon to myself. But now people can see, wait a minute. Even a person like Wes, who have a lot of experience with anxiety, mental health, yeah. still yeah. perpetually experience that. So yeah,
2: yeah, I think it, it, it's like, I mean, I, I refer to it in the book, like playing Marco Polo with your feelings, <laughs> you know, like trying to actually explore it and you know, trying to you know be genuinely curious about it. But also the first chapter of the book, I try to dispel the idea that you're abnormal or crazy for these, for these feelings. That is one thing that I hated so much that led to internal level of shame and embarrassment was being told stop overthinking uh, you stop worrying all the time you're sensitive you're crazy i have been told these things
0: just tough it I, out just don't think about it out,
2: yeah. out. because i think as a male and as a black male like as a person of color let's start there first off as a person of color the mental health stigma is amplified because for us as black folks when we when we feel sad or when we feel depressed you know or some level of feeling we go to Jesus, we go to sleep. There's no no therapy, there's no medication, there's no nothing. No talking about it. If you go to your parents, I'm not saying my parents, but I have friends of mine who are of color and saying, you know, I can't tell my mom I'm depressed because they'll just say sleep it off. You know what I mean? It's not a thing. So I wanted to normalize the feeling. How I actually do that is I explain that anxiety is our protection mechanism that we were designed with. Since our early caveman days, you know what I mean? It's how we perceive and how we react to dangerous situations. Um, and most people don't even think like that. They just think, I'm guilty of having these feelings. I'm disgusting. I'm crazy. I'm stupid. I'm, these are all things that we tell ourselves. And one question that I actually got from a friend, and it just messed up my mind. He, like, listed, like, would you ever tell someone that they're stupid, or ugly, fat, disgusting, Uh, what, what else? Not good enough. Just crazy. Would you ever tell someone that to their face? Nah, I would never. So why do you tell it to yourself? Well, damn. I, (laughs) I was just like, well, damn. You know what I mean? Like that, it really, it really stuck with me because we do, I think uh, i was saying in the book how in our heads we have, I mean, for me, I I feel like I have like this court in my head that I'm, I'm the prosecutor, jury and judge. And every feeling that I have is automatically guilty. And I don't. I don't even try to unpack it at all. I just say, "You're guilty. I hate you. Go to jail." That's it. I try to suppress it. But like, you have to. You have to have some level of curiosity around it um, to explore more of it. Because if you don't, you're robbing yourself such a huge, huge opportunity to learn more about yourself. I stand by that. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Definitely.
1: I think one of the phrases or sayings that I'm really thinking through is being a witness of that voice or being a witness of yes. those thoughts that are going on. Yes. That's really explored in the book, the untethered soul by Michael Singer that I've wholeheartedly that. enjoyed. Yes. Um, and I think it kind of speaks to that whole internal narrative that we're all saying. And another, I guess, beautiful portion of writing, because this is something we explored in our last topic of like the healing element of it. Um, yes. Our guest shared with us that just as much as the world needs art, we need art to kind of process those things, you know, as a yes. processing tool, which, I mean, could you speak to the f- process of writing a book about anxiety? Like, I'd really like to kind of dig in a little bit on those four months where you wrote, what did you say, 30 40,000 words? Yeah, yeah. How did that change your view of both your own life and just the mental health condition and culture Throughout America,
2: in, in this podcast could could we could we curse? Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. I, didn't know, I didn't know that. Uh, I was scared shitless. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was scared shitless. You know what I mean? Because it was like I was now not only. I mean, I, I was basically taking the reflections that I had on my phone and in my journals, and I was putting on this paper that I'm going to basically share with everyone else. You know what I mean? And I was really scared because, like, I was like, wow, like I really feel these things. You know what I mean? I really, really feel like these things, and. And the more I kind of interviewed a psychologist, a psychiatrist, I I understood how normal anxiety actually is. And a big part of it where it becomes excessive and uh, detrimental to to us who we are as people is our own judgment of our feelings, you know what I mean, and how we kind of judge it. But going back to the four months where I wrote the book, the process of it all was kind of very much how I describe it. It was kind of how I was feeling at the time mixed with being driven with a mission. And the mission was to share what I learned in anxiety school with everyone else. And in my mind, I just kept replaying those sessions of being in there for literally nine hours a day for five days a week, being in those rooms with those kids, seeing that girl with bandages on her wrists. I was like, no, this book has to be published. You know what I mean? And I'll admit, like, in the beginning of it, like, I really, really honed on what happened to me and, like, the big panic attack and... You know, I talk about the story at length of how, you know, the abusive relationship and the police getting involved and having a police officer kind of like put his hand on me and say, you are in an abusive relationship, you need to get out, like just messes my mind and on different levels. And I started to let that part of me go because these four months have allowed me to actually heal from what happened to me. So this book has definitely been cathartic in that sense of like, you know, working through the worries and the demons, I guess you can say, that I've had myself. And it's kind of come full circle because I realized that I went from being a year ago thinking I was crazy to now feeling I'm just anxious. And those four months, uh, and, and the book is still being worked on like, right now. I'm, I, I don't want to you know, discount that. The book is still being finalized and edited and are going through revisions as we speak. But those four months have offered me such a level of ability to just release my feelings the page and learn more about the monster i guess you can say um that i i've suffered with or been haunted by and
0: i just want to share that with everyone else you're not mentioning that consciously so now but from my point of view i bet that was another huge growth opportunity for you because there's always the discrepancies between the expectations and the reality because i'm sure yeah. what you expected the process of writing 34,000 yeah. words i think to be exact Versus the actual reality of writing that 34,000 words must have been very different. Because like you talked about, instead of sparingly looking at different collage or collections of tiny notes, but now you've consolidated all the lessons before your eyes to bring that into life, to bring those lessons into life. And since we're on the topic, I have an open form question for, I guess, all three of us. I've heard this a while back from a pretty well-known trauma psychologist. When you were describing the ethos and the mission statements of your book, both of you guys were using the word overcome your anxiety. I actually have a different approach to that. Uh, I think rather than using the words, because I think more often than not, people underestimate the importance and the delicacy of words, because perception is reality, right? So for us to describe and prescribe to our reality, I think it really depends on the words we use. And especially in mental health space, I know words are a very, very delicate thing, and yes, I think words have the power to create the most trauma, I think more so than physical violence in my mind hey, wow. um so hey, with that yeah. being said, yeah, I like to view trauma as something you have you don't have to overcome, but you can come to peace with, mm. right because I view anxiety as like ego. Everyone who battles anxiety, uh, regardless of the extent whether it's chronic anxiety or Something that's more temporary or more seasonal <clears throat> for you to Talking about overcoming your anxiety. It's almost talking about your you overcoming your ego yes. I don't think there's anything to overcome because it's part of who you are Your anxiety right. is part of you It is yes, part of your identity temporary. Your ego is part of your identity So I think there's not much to overcome But you just have to come to peace that it is a part of you it's just like your social anxiety I don't know if you actively overcame that quote-unquote but I think you just came to peace with that, right? Because when I was listening to your TED talk this morning, as I'm hearing to your storytelling once again on this show, yeah. I just hear and feel a sense of acceptance from you. Yeah. I think you accepted the fact that you have a social anxiety and yeah. it's just who you are as a person. Yeah. And yet you chose to lean into that vulnerability part about you and use that as strength. So yeah. I don't really personally see a need to overcome, but more so a need to accept and come to peace and i think that's the most effective way for us to create that sustainable change because you can't really change who you are you just have to accept no
2: yeah it it is so interesting you say that because going back to your first point too is like mental health words do matter in the field of of mental health you want to choose your words carefully and here you say that i want to change the word overcome to own you know what i mean and and to, to to own it to own it to unapologetically own your anxiety um, because I think we, like you said, and I, I agree with you about the idea of ego, because for me, I thought my ego was shattered, <laughs> um, after I kind of got out of that abusive relationship. And after I put the pieces back together, I realized, you're right. Anxiety is a part of me, you know, it is a part of me, just like my last name is a part of me or my fingers are a part of me. I have to own it you know what I mean? I think we run from it so much, but I I think you're right. You are so right. And thank you for bringing that up because I want to change the word to own, not overcome. So thank you for that. Appreciate it, brother.
1: I love it, man. And I think the idea that you just introduced of own, I think is massive, both in terms of mental health struggles and just life in general. This past or two years ago, I worked with a coach and he introduced me to one idea that completely transformed the way I see every part of my life. And it's the idea that I am solely responsible for every result in my life, good or bad, right? And there's it's so easy to blame external sources on our circumstances or what's happening in our life. But yeah. I mean, it comes full circle to what you talked about, about what you can control and what you can't control. And that's ultimately ownership is taking ownership of the things you can control, really leaning into those things. And to yeah. what Ben said, like accepting every part of ourselves that isn't just... The great parts, it is the bad parts. One thing that I've been exploring a lot is kind of like shadow work, looking, <clears throat> looking behind the curtains in a lot of ways. <clears throat> um, and I'm almost, I mean, I'm certainly guilty of this of like not going far enough into those shadows. Uh, and I think I'd like to hear your thoughts around this of therapy as a perpetual practice or a not to say short term solution or a solution in the interim. So I went to therapy from probably last July through November and by yep. come November, I just felt like pretty light. I was like, there's not a whole lot I have to worry about. I like don't really feel like I need to be paying a therapist to be talking through my problems. But at the end of the day, I felt like I was almost inventing things to talk to her about, which was then um, yeah. perpetuating problems, but yeah. you know, now two months on the other side of that, I was like, wow, I feel like I'm sliding back to old thinking patterns or like, yeah. you know, those shadows are starting to come back up. So I'm almost beginning to explore the idea of therapy as a perpetual practice, kind of something that always needs to stay on the front of mind, even if it's not like urgently there. So how do you kind of see therapy moving forward, both in your own experience and then potentially for other people in the world navigating mental health issues?
2: No, totally. I, I agree with that. I, I personally, after I went through my parents' divorce, I, I, started, see, I started therapy um, just to, to deal with that. The therapist I have now, I've been seeing her for about two years now, almost three years. And we've actually covered that about, you know, do you want to see me every every week? Do you want to see me twice a month? Like we've gone back and forth. And the one thing that I have started to understand is that therapy isn't an idea of just like putting a bandaid on and and walking away, like like going, like you said, going from, let's say, September to November, and then, like, after you kind of work through those issues, it's over, because I think it's a continued practice, you know what I mean? Obviously, you have to also remind yourself that therapy doesn't work, regardless of short-term or long-term, unless you do, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. therapy doesn't work unless you do, which I think many people fail to realize. They think that because they go pay someone X amount of dollars to go see them twice a week or it's a cure to their problems. Nothing, like in the mental health field, I promise you, nothing in terms of medication or, or seeing a therapist is going to cure your problems. It's just going to help you. It's going to assist you, but it's not going to cure you. So at some point, you have to do some level of work on your own. And I, we go back and forth, my therapist and I, regarding on how I'm to see her. But I go back to my example of the, of the basketball team. Every basketball team has a coach for a reason you know what I mean like the coach just doesn't go away yeah, and I, I think I see my therapist the same way I might not see this specific one forever but I think therapy will be a part of my life for a very long time because the human just psych is so complex that
1: how could you not want to have someone help you guide you through that you know what I mean because if you're
2: not having that level of assistance I don't think you have the opportunity to see a different perspective or you know I mean unless you go get a PhD and like Ben, you know, you're going you're going to school for this stuff. But like, I, I still think even then, therapy, you, you need therapy. I really think it's a very much of a continued practice because there's so much to unpack in our lives. That's that's one thing I personally believe. But everyone can have their different opinion. I hope that answers your question.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's so
2: important. Mm-hmm. So important.
1: Yeah, and I love the idea of practice that you mentioned, kind of like yeah. that ongoing practice. Practice can takes so many forms. I mean, right now we're talking about a therapy practice, but there's also a writing practice, a reflection, meditation practice, even the practice of continuing to talk about these kind of ideas really brings light to them. I think right now I'm reading Atomic Habits by James Clear. Yeah. So in the book he argues that we become our habits. We become the practices that we maintain over and over again. So Wes, in your case, the practice of reflecting at the end of every day, the practice of going to therapy and working through those problems really shapes the people that we are in the long term. So I just kind of want to highlight that, you know, the things that we do as small as they are, if it's making your bed or brushing your teeth, whatever the small habits are, those practices ultimately become who we are in the long term. Hands down. Hands down.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I really liked Aiden's question. Because the duration of therapy is something I've always questioned and thought about. And I bring up that point because I service, like my job as a program manager in the policy realm is to empower a lot of my clients with socioeconomic disadvantages. And a lot of them actually work with therapists, right? And I remember this particular client of mine who was battling chronic depression for years, no end. I asked her, Do you have a therapist? And she said, I love my therapist. I was like, oh, I mean, it's awesome that you have a therapist, but if you have a therapist and you have a loving relationship with a therapist, then you shouldn't be battling as much depressions or mental health challenges as you do now. And so through that conversation, I realized, and then I was trying to talk to her to see if if she'd be interested in finding a new therapist because with my professional experience at that time, I assessed that the therapist she was with is not best serving her needs. That's wow. why she was with her for two plus years, but a lot of her mental health related challenges aren't even being addressed, let alone wow. resolved. So right, that's right, when right. the first idea of, huh, what is the intention and what is the functionality of therapy? What is it right. for? And hearing about what you're talking about, your own therapy, your own relationship with your therapist for the past two, three years, analogy came onto my mind. Mm. I view, I now view, because this is a very fresh idea that just forms. Three minutes ago i think i now view therapy as a, a gps or navigation system yes i think the work of therapy isn't meant to be done in a therapy session but a therapist comes in with the identity and the functionality and the intention to spot a light onto your issues spot a light to navigate you to show you the gps system into your own inner reality because exactly. we talked about in the beginning of the conversation that most people don't do the work. Most people don't reflect. right? Most people don't right. do that. So I agree with you, Wes, that I think most people think, oh, since I'm paying 100 bucks an hour, since I'm seeing this mental health expert, that's my work. No. That is not the work. That that's is the, work. the navigation to the work that you have to do. But it's the integration after the therapy that where the benefits of mental health truly shines through and a therapist, whether it's a coach or a therapist, I'm using the life coach and therapist interchangeably because I think a lot of their uh, duties and purposes overlap is that like you in a coaching call with your coach or you in a call with a therapist, you're not doing the work. That's that's the prep to set up the stage so that you could do the work. And I think this is an important conversation for everyone that I personally, I don't know the answer yet, and I don't know what the happy or optimal point is in terms of the perfect, quote-unquote, duration of therapy. But I personally think with this current knowledge that I'm given with my years of experience in the mental health space, I think maybe two or three years. I don't know the definite answer. Hopefully, I'll learn that uh, within the next when I go back to school. But I think two or three years is an optimal point if you have a loving relationship with a very competent therapist I think after that to your park, I would like to urge the listeners and yourself to explore and go on a shopping spree, trying to see um, what other therapists out there, because what people don't understand is there's many modalities that therapists work with. There's Correct. cognitive behavior therapy, there is psychoanalysis part, there's a bunch of different ways, and every difference. and different navigation systems have different purposes and different strength. And just because you have a good therapist that you're working with, I don't think that should stop you from looking outwardly and trying to find a new therapist because, as we know, Google Maps has different strengths and ways. So, different navigation systems have different strengths. Yes. And if yes. you, you might find yourself, like what Aiden experienced with a therapist, that after four months, your issues might be resolved at that time. That doesn't mean that you don't have any other issues aside from those issues that's being addressed through a therapist. So, right. and I think trying out different navigation systems, trying out different GPS systems, might serve some benefits and like I guess I don't know if two or three years is the answer but I think there has to be a diminishing return point with any therapist doesn't matter how competent they are
2: right and I I want to also just two things I should start with one you're uh, the navigation and GPS I love that I love that but I take that that example and that comparison further right in my car right now my GPS the voice is a, a British man.
1: I think it's, it's, it's sophisticated. So it's like, oh, dope. Like, I have a man that says, turn White right, And I love that. <laughs> it's dope. But like the voice
2: is different. You can choose a different voice. I think even like on Waze, the app itself, you can choose from like Shaq uh, telling you where to go or something like that. Or like Morgan Freeman telling you where to go. I love that analogy and it's so, so important. And the reason why I say it is because no matter what the voice is, it's going to, get you to the destination You know, I mean, it's going to tell you where to go but you're right like to be honest i'm getting a little sick and tired of british man so i might want to <laughs> i might want to go find someone else that leads to my next point of the two to three year gap i think i agree with that too the reason why i actually didn't make that change my therapist actually moved um she moved to arizona so i, I was like oh my gosh like what do i do like and this she was moving at the height of the george floyd stuff was going on and that was triggering for me because i'm a black man who, you know, escaped the abusive relationship where the police were involved. I have all these emotions inside of me. And to be honest, th- this summer really showed me how a sh- how much of a shortage there is of therapists in the mental health field who can actually see
1: clients right now. Because the need is so high, but the supply is not that high.
2: Because I was trying to find a new therapist, but there was no one, like I tried shopping, but there was no one who was taking on new clients because they had so many already, you know what I mean? Um, and I think that that actually going to my third point, actually about the dangers and the ripple effect of COVID-19 personally, um, we're going to see a large demand for mental health therapists and psychologists, psychiatrists, but I don't think that demand will be met or can be met. I don't think our country has a strong enough system in place for that. Even right now, currently on Biden's task force, President Biden's task force, there is no one heading up a mental health effort at all, which is crazy to me. Like, that's that's like what? Like, I understand the vaccine. That's important. But what about the mental health component of all this? No one's asking this. Like, no one's talking about this. There is no one on his cabinet nor his task force that has been focused on trying to solve the mental health crisis that is going on in this country. It's nuts to me not sure where that goes but i just wanted to throw that out there it is kind of sad when i read that and i, I kind of put it out there i i personally believe of mine. that's really thing.
1: yeah and it's it's a sad but important thing to throw out there because you know and, we're missing we don't have enough help right now and that uh, issue is only going to move forward in the future because like you said uh, people have been out of school out of work Uh, Uh kids at developmental years, I can only imagine if, you know, I was in high school and I wasn't able to see anything or see any of my friends for that long when you're learning how to create relationships like that. I always selfishly joke that I've been training for the pandemic as an introvert. Like I like my reading. I like my writing, but you know, it still has affected me in numerous ways. You know, I still am biologically human of, I need those social connections, but it's, I recognize that the pandemic wasn't as much as a challenge for myself as an introvert that it is for my extroverted friends. And yes. on that note, the mental health element of it was still certainly challenging for myself, extroverted friends, probably n- numerous. So, and to what you pointed out, mental health is at a baseline for everything. You know, if yes, people are healthy and happy, then our economy works better Then our relationships work better. It's almost the bottom pillar, kind of that foundational pillar, part that everything else can grow out of. So Literally. I do agree. It's I'm almost frustrated that our colleges or high schools like didn't I guess explain how much of a needed profession and idea this would be. I think it is something that's emerging through the last year, the last few years, but really it was, you know, be a engineer, an accountant, a doctor, or a lawyer, but I think mental health is almost more important than all of those things because time after time, those professions have therapists to help them deal with their own stuff. You really? know? So it's just a funny and ironic, like, cyclical ironic. relationship.
2: It really, is. it really is. And that's why I believe, like, when the book comes out and I do a few talks and I have to clothing the company too, my next, like, goal, I want to actually go back to school and become a therapist. I want to actually, you know, try to help other kids with this. There's such a shortage on it, you know what I mean? And people don't. They didn't teach us that in school, how to actually, you know, feel our feelings. They taught us the Pythagorean theorem. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know <laughs> my life now, I can't tell yeah. you, but <laughs> but wish they kind of taught us this stuff.
0: Definitely. You're saying that slope wasn't as helpful as what they told us to be? <laughs> or the linear <laughs> equations?
2: Linear equations, literally.
0: Yeah, obviously, as we're joking about, some of the concepts that we were taught in school and the current education systems aren't as useful as what the teachers told us to be. But I think jokes aside, it does talk about the seriousness and the importance for us to talk about that, right? You talked about U.S. currently as a healthcare system because it's on a very reactive framework. We don't have a system in place to mm-hmm. prepare for the second wave of pandemic which is mental health a mm-hmm. epidemic caused by the covid the virus side of that mm-hmm. and so systematically there is definitely a need there's definitely a demand to have some sort of an improvement upon the system that we have another yes. systematic issue that i'm very passionate about is the system of education as a whole in the united yes. states of america and we, all three of us, know how problematic and flawed that is, and how of how much of a disservice that the education system has been for Americans, for the next generation, even for our generation. So I want to use that as a segue to talk about a earlier part of your life, where you've told us uh, before the interview that you were diagnosed with special needs in terms yeah. of learning disability in school, and yeah. for the past nearly two hours of conversations we've explored the identities, we've explored the identity crisis, we've explored your strategies and how you were able to come to peace and own the identity yes. of yours. Uh, yeah. But when I view the brands and the identity, the macro overall identity of Wes Wilson, I see all our irony and contradiction. What I mean by that is, after you were diagnosed with social anxiety by the psychiatrist, you went on to deliver your first TED Talk as a public speaker. As soon as you were diagnosed with learning disability in middle school, when you were in your town of Sharon, you decided to become a public speaker. And not just any public speaker, but a, at one point ranked as the top speaker at the time in Massachusetts. And at a point of your uh, speaking career, you were considered as a top 10 public speaker in the nation. Yeah. So you were able to carry on and achieve things that almost weren't meant for you. Like these paths that you've tackled on, it's almost like God's like, wait a minute, Wes, you have a social anxiety. You probably shouldn't think about a career as a public speaker. Uh, Wes, you have a learning disability. You probably shouldn't become an author, but you were able to own that and come to peace with those. Um, So I'd love to talk about your experiences and your feedback on the other side. Now, reflecting upon all those and for you to talk about how the system of education disservices you growing up. Because obviously, the problem isn't with you, it's with the system. Because if the system diagnosis was correct, that you truly had learning disability, you probably wouldn't become the person that you are today.
1: Thank you for listening to part one of our interview with Wes Woodson. We learned so much from this conversation, and we hope you did it as well. Please tune in next week for part two of the interview, in which we discuss the education system and entrepreneurship. As always, we greatly appreciate your support, and we hope you have a great week. Thank you. Thank you
0: for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and it would really appreciate
1: if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.